entitled, God is Not a Man. And I will just do a little review here. Let me read uh, the first two verses that we dealt with. You can go ahead and turn to Hosea, but I wanted to reread these verses that we looked at last time. The first is in Numbers 23:19, where we're told, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? And then the second verse that we looked at is in 1 Samuel 15:29, where we're told, And also the glory of Israel, that is God, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And then the one that we'll be looking at primarily this evening is in, in Hosea, um, chapter 11. <clears throat> Hosea 11 and verse 9. I will not execute my fierce anger, I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. The Bible often brings out the contrast between God and man, and these three scriptures that we've looked at, we see it stated clearly and simply, God is not a man. And what we've seen the last time that I spoke had to do with the first two verses. God does not lie. Men do. There's a big contrast there. God is not a man. The next verse, God does not change. God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change. Men do all the time. And then the one that we are going to deal with mainly tonight. God is not unloving, unforgiving, or unmerciful, but men constantly tend toward these ungodly attitudes. Or if you wanted to put it another way, men do not forgive the way God does. God is not a man. So we looked at these first two just briefly last time. Considering the, these characteristics of God's nature as contrast, contrasted with man's fallen nature. And just to reemphasize just briefly here, God doesn't lie. He cannot lie, we're told in Titus 1-2. It's impossible for God to lie, we're told in Hebrews 6-18. God never misre misrepresents or twist the truth, he's not deceptive. His word is truth. But how different is man? Often people cannot be taken at their word. We see unfaithfulness in business and government, marriages, friendships, and even in religion. 
But God's not like that. God is not a man that he should lie. The other thing we looked at last week is that God doesn't change, specifically that he does not change his mind. God is at once faithful and unchanging. The word that's often used in theology books is immutable. God is perpetually the same. That doesn't mean that he's uh, static or inactive, but it does mean that he's not subject to change in his being, his attributes, his determinations, his purposes. That's why he is compared to a rock in the scriptures. He's everlastingly, what we're told in James, the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. What God is, he always is. His nature, his purposes do not change. He doesn't evolve. He doesn't grow. He doesn't improve. All that he is today, he ever has been and ever will be. I am the Lord. I change not, we're told in Malachi. There's no fluctuation with God. But man's not like that. He's often fickle, capricious, up and down. He often changes his mind, and often that change is for the worse, not for the better. So human nature cannot be relied upon, but God can be. However unstable you or I may be, however fickle other people may prove to be, God changes not. His purposes are fixed, his will is stable, and his word is sure. He is a rock in a changing and fluctuating world. God is not a man that he should change his mind. Well, that's the areas that we looked at last week. But we want to go on now to this section in Hosea chapter 11. And really, uh, to understand this one verse that I've picked out, verse 9, we have to read... uh, greater portion of the chapter itself. Let me just say before I read it that when this section speaks of Ephraim, this is one of the tribes of Israel, and there were times in Israel's history when Ephraim was the most dominant tribe in the kingdom, which led to Ephraim sometimes being uh, a synonym for the entire kingdom. You could talk about Israel, you could talk about Ephraim, and I think that's the way it's used in this section here. Um, so let's, let's read through this, at least the first nine verses up to what, the verse that we want to uh, get to tonight, because it's important to get a feel for the context here. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. I being God, of course. I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, they being the prophets, the more they called them, the more they went from them. In other words, the more God's prophets speaking for God called the people, the more they uh, went from, went away from the prophets. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms. 
but they did not know that I that I healed them. I led them with the cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. Now look at, get the picture here. It's God speaking to his people here as a father to the son. He said, I, I treated them just like a father would treat a son. I, I, uh, I, I, out of Egypt, I called them. I, 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 uh, taught them. I taught them how to walk, just like a father would teach a little child how to walk. I took them in my arms. Uh, I led them. I bent down. I fed them. Verse 5. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king, because they refuse to return to me. And the sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me, though they, again the prophets, they call them to the one on high. None at all exalts him. So do you get the feel here? A picture of a people that God is taking care of, and yet they don't care for him. They don't look to him. They, In fact, they turn away. Um, a people... So my people are bent on turning from me. Now, listen to this. This is an these next two verses are incredible, considering the context there. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like uh, Ad Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. Now, let me just break in here. These two uh, places he mentions, Adma and Zeboim. These are cities that were destroyed at the same time that Sodom and Gomorrah were. You were part of the city of the plains that were wiped out. Let's just, just to establish that. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 23. Let's turn there just quickly so we see why he brings these up. 29-23. All its land is brimstone and salt. Remember, that's what happened. Uh, God rained fire and brimstone. A burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows in it, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. So he's saying, how can I do that to you? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. And then the verse we're looking at, I will not execute my fierce anger, I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Though Ephraim and Israel, but we're speaking specifically of Ephraim, had grievously and repeatedly failed to follow God, 
God says, how can I give you up? What we have here is something of an enigma because we've already talked about God being unchanging, immutable, never changes his mind. And yet here the unchanging God seemingly is divided and torn in his attitude toward Ephraim. Do you see that? See how he says that my heart is turned over within me. Now I want to read you what Matthew Henry says. Um, He says, this is God's gracious debate within himself concerning Israel's case, a debate between justice and mercy in which victory plainly inclines to mercy's side. Then he says this, Be astonished, O heavens, be astonished at this, and wonder, O earth, at the glory of God's goodness. Not that there are any such struggles in God as there are in us, or that he is ever fluctuating or unresolved. No, he is in one mind, and he knows it. He is in one mind. He doesn't change, you see. He is in one mind and knows knows it. But they are expressions after the manner of men designed to show what severity the sin of Israel had deserved and yet how divine grace would be glorified in sparing them. Be astonished, O heavens, at this and wonder, O earth. Though God is pictured here like a man dealing with a wayward, rebellious son, yet he is not a man in that he forgives in ways a natural man does not and cannot. Because God is not a man, he will not give up Ephraim. God is above and beyond any man in the way he responds to being sinned against. God, let me restate that, say it again. God is above and beyond any man in the way he responds to being sinned against. He has greater grace, greater long-suffering, a greater willingness to forgive. I will not destroy Ephraim. Consider what we've read here about what they've, how they've turned away, shunned him, sinned. Uh, so much so it says uh, they kept sacrificing to Baals and burned incense to idols. What man will do by way of his lack of love and goodness, God will not do because of his immeasurable kindness and love. All my compassions are kindled, God says. He will not give up Ephraim. Spurgeon put it this way, God is infinitely more forbearing, infinitely more tender, infinitely more ready to pass over offenses than any man ever can be. And then he goes on to say this, again Spurgeon, 
When God can find in man no reason for showing mercy to him, he still finds a reason for displaying his mercy, for he looks for it in his own heart. He does not say, I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for he is not as bad as he might be, or there is really something hopeful about him. No, the Lord does not let the bucket down into that dry well, but he fetches the argument for his mercy out of himself. For I am God. And then Spurgeon says this. This is such a good line. He says, Guilty one, your hope of pardon lies in the character of God. And the more quickly and completely you realize this fact, the better it will be for you. Your hope for pardon lies in the character of God. Do not be looking into yourself to find some reason for God to forgive you. That will either lead to despair or self-righteousness. Look instead, look instead to him who delights to show mercy. The one who says, I will abundantly pardon. The one who says, I am God and not man. Now, unbelief and wrong thinking has sometime caused us to believe that we'd be better off seeking pardon and forgiveness from man than from God. And especially in our day, you know, we're to consider our society one of tolerance and acceptance. Well, that's not true. Most of the tolerance is a facade for intolerance, and man's forgiveness is very shallow in comparison with God's. If we had offended a man the way we have sinned against God, we'd have no hope for love or forgiveness. The fact is that man's angry passions would overpower any compassion they would have if we'd sinned against other people the way we sinned against God. But there is hope for you and I as guilty sinners because the one we have to deal with is God and not a man. So what I'd like to do here is consider for a moment how God's forgiveness far exceeds that of man's. And again, many of these thoughts are from Charles Spurgeon. I've rearranged them and put some other things in, but by and large, these are things that I gleaned from a, a message I read by him. So, here are seven ways God's forgiveness exceeds man's. First of all, men cannot keep from getting angry for very long. Some men soon lose their tempers, just a little offense, and they are upset. Now, if God was like that, we would have perished long ago. But here's the amazing thing. Even the best of men in their natural ways of handling offenses have a point where they lose their patience. Even Moses, a godly, meek man, 
got to a place where he lost his patience. Men will draw the line somewhere and say, I'm not going to forgive after that. You remember the disciples even said, now how many times do I have to forgive somebody? Seven times, they they were going to draw the line there. That's pretty generous. Seven times a person sins against me. Well, you remember what Jesus said. Seventy times seven. And here's the thing we need to realize. God has forgiven us far more than seventy times seven. God is long-suffering and patient far more than any man because he's not a man. God is not a man. This section brings this out so clearly. Here is Ephraim over and over again turning from God, yet God says, I will not give you up, O Ephraim. In fact, he says... Look at how he says this here. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. And I will not come in wrath. Even considering all that Ephraim had done in turning away from God. So, that's the first point. Man cannot keep from getting angry for very long. Second point. Men are moody. Little lack of sleep, uh, not feeling too well, you got a headache, you got a toothache. What happens? You're grumpy and hard to live with. It doesn't take too much to set you off when you're like that. You're prone to deal severely with others, even for little offenses. Such are the ways of you and I. But God's not like that. He is never in such a condition that he feels ready to be irritated with his creatures. Never. He's never like that. He's never moody or irritable. Never like a person who is ready to take offense, even at little things. Why is that? It's because God is not a man. He's never out of sorts, never in a bad mood. Number three, consider that some men will forgive you if you make the effort to come to them, the first effort to come to them, and ask them to forgive you. Some men will forgive you if you make that effort to come. But God goes far beyond this. He is the first to move in this matter, always. You might say, well, why should I be expected to be the first to move toward reconciliation if I'm the offended one, the one sinned against? Well, in human affairs, it's not expected of you to be like that. You know why? Because you're only human. But God is far greater. And he is the first to move, always the first to move in the direction of reconciliation. Even though he's the one that has been grievously offended against. 
Again, it is never the sinner who is first, who first wants to get right with God. It's always God in the freeness of his grace who comes to the sinner because God is not a man. Number four. Men will sometimes seek reconciliation with people if they deem them to be basically decent people who have just made a mistake or perhaps they've misunderstood the situation. But men are not inclined to be reconciled to people who they know to be bad and morally corrupt. People you know are just bad people. You're not inclined to to seek forgiveness in that type of situation. Just leave that person alone. Let them go their sinful way. But God does not take that position because he is God and not a man. He seeks out his sinful enemies. God seeks out his sinful enemies to be reconciled to them though willfully and continually mistreated by his sinful creatures. He is not willing to treat them in the way men treat their evil enemies. God does not do that because he is God and not man. Number five. Men will will often only restore an offender after a period of probation. You know, I want to see if this person is really going to be different before I accept him. I want to make sure that he or she has changed before I show favor to them. But God's not like that. He demands no season of probation. He says, just come as you are. That's what this song that is often sung has to say. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. No period of probation, just come. Why is that? Because God's not a man. Number six. And here's something you'll never conceive of a man saying. Think of this. I've been grievously wronged by that person. The injury is a very cruel one. There's no remedy for it, but I will myself bear the penalty for all the wrong that has been done me. I will bear the whole penalty myself. As judge, the righteous God must punish sin... 
Nevertheless, the judge himself takes the penalty upon himself. Offenses that were committed against his own authority and own person, he bears those consequences in his own person. God himself becomes the substitute for those who have broken his law. How can that be? Well, God is not a man. Men don't forgive like this. God is not a man, but he became a man so that our sins could be forgiven. To suffer and die in place of the offender. Who's ever heard of such a thing? It couldn't have come from man. But God is not a man. And then lastly, number seven. The natural man may sometimes forgive one who has hurt or offended them because they know they should do that or because they know that being unforgiving and bitter can have an adverse effect on their life and health. But do men go beyond this to love the one that hated them, to honor the one that dishonored them, to trust the one who betrayed them, to even adopt into their family the one who desired their destruction? No, that would not be reasonable for a man to do. But this is what God does because God is not a man. He takes the former unfaithful one and trusts him with his precious treasure, the gospel. Think of that. He takes the unfaithful, the untrustworthy, the liar, and puts in his possession the truth and says, go with it now. Take it out to others. He takes the sinner and makes him a son or daughter. He takes the former rebel and makes him a prince, a priest. In fact, he takes him, takes him into his very family and promises to provide for him the rest of his life. And then he makes that former rebel into his heir forever. The enemy becomes the companion and friend. More than that, the blasphemer becomes the bride. Spurgeon, again, let me quote him. He says, There is nothing that he will not do for a pardoned sinner. There is nothing that he will withhold from a soul that, believing in Christ, has sin forgiven. He shall be with him where he is. You shall be with him where he is. You shall sit on his throne with him. You shall reign with him forever and ever, as surely as you come and accept his infinite grace. So, 
He takes the rebel right into his family, the repentant rebel. So, to sum up here, our salvation is the outworking of who he is, his character. And that's what's stated in this verse. I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. As Spurgeon I just want to reemphasize it. As Spurgeon said, guilty one, your hope lies in the character of God. He's God and not man. That's where your hope lies. Now these truths in no way deny the wrath and righteous judgment of God to those with stubborn and unrepentant hearts. But you'll only have yourself to blame if you despise the great riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, the great forgiveness that he offers in the gospel. These precious realities of God's character are meant to lead you to repentance. What I've said here tonight is meant to lead you to repentance. Consider the character of God, the great forgiveness that he's provided in Christ. It should be a great encouragement to our repentance and faith to remember that God is not a man. He delights to forgive. God delights to forgive. He longs to forgive. He wants to forgive. He's done everything that he might forgive your sins. That's why he sent his son. John 3.17 For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. And Jesus said the same thing in his own words. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. God delights to save. God delights to forgive because he's God and not man. Now I want to close with by quoting some verses from a song. This is a song by Samuel Davies, Great God of Wonders. It's in our songbook. I don't know if we sing it or not, and I've got a few different verses here. Great God of wonders, all thy ways display the attributes divine, but countless acts of pardoning grace beyond thine others wonder, other wonders shine. Who is a pardoning God like thee, or who has grace so rich and free? Pardon from an offended God, pardon for sins of deepest dye, pardon bestowed through Jesus' blood, pardon that brings the rebel nigh. Who is a pardoning God like thee, or who has grace so rich and free? Angels and men resign your claim to pity, mercy, love, and grace. These glories crown Jehovah's name with an incomparable glaze. Who is a pardoning God like thee, or who has grace so rich and free? Nobody, no man, forgives like God forgives. Nobody can. Nobody has. Who is a pardoning God like thee, 
or who has grace so rich and free. God is not a man.